Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, it's Danielle Smith. Oh, hello. It's Laura Lynch. How are you? Hi, Laura. I'm really good. Okay, you might be surprised to hear the Premier of Alberta connecting with me on a show that's focused on climate solutions. After all, she's a booster of oil and gas and a harsh critic of Ottawa's climate policies. But Danielle Smith did. In fact, she offered to come on. We'll talk about climate change, harmful emissions, and whether it's time to leave fossil fuels in the ground. Alberta should be the the best barrel and the last barrel in the market. So why did Premier Smith want to join me? Well, it might have to do with an interview I did last week with the federal minister responsible for climate change. Stephen Gilbo didn't hold back when it came to his strained relationship with the premier. My role as environment minister is, is not to make friends. Now, he said a lot more, and it's all there. It's available on our podcast that you can find if you look for it. It's called What on Earth, by the way. (laughs) And I'm Laura Lynch, by the way. And now it's Danielle Smith's turn. Premier Danielle Smith, welcome to What on Earth. My pleasure. Nice to talk to you, Laura. Uh, This was a summer of climate reckoning. There was record-breaking heat, drought, wildfires, decimated homes, forced tens of thousands of Canadians to flee. There's been flooding that's taken homes and some lives. Waters on all three coasts were warmer than ever. I'm wondering what comes to mind for you when you hear about these stories and, and see the images. I can tell you in Alberta, we've been experiencing this for some time, where we've had record levels of flooding, we've had ice storms, we've had serious fires, Slave Lake, Fort McMurray, and then, of course, a record fire season this year. When we do our budget and we do our planning around our our cabinet and caucus, we talk about this being the new normal, that we've got to be planning for these kinds of weather events and making sure that we're prepared and that communities are protected. Now, what role, if any, do do you see Alberta's oil and gas sector playing in all of this? Well, our our oil and gas sector, I think, is being very proactive in having set ambitious targets for emissions reduction. Uh, I was delighted to see in the last number of years, the Pathways Group, which is our largest oil sands players, uh, make a, a target of being net zero by 2050. So they've got an aggressive plan. Others have joined on along as well. We, we now have a petrochemical sector, Dow Chemicals, uh, close to making a final investment decision on a net zero petrochemical plant. Air Products is uh, uh, investing in a net zero hydrogen I, facilities. I, I'm sorry to interrupt. It's, that's my fault for not being clear. What I was asking about was what oh. role oil and gas is playing in, in causing these kinds of events. Well, I, I, I would look at the oil and gas sector as, as understanding that they've got to reduce emissions and that if they're going to survive as an industry, they have to be transitioning to a net zero model. And so they are hearing from their investment community. They're hearing from their consumers the international markets and all of the various agreements that we've signed, they've taken it seriously. And so I'm, I'm pleased to do whatever we can to support them in that aspiration. I want to talk about um, some things uh, that you've characterized Stephen Gilbo's targets as. You call uh, the minister's target of the net zero grid by 2035. 
and a reduction of oil and gas emissions by 2030 unrealistic. I'm wondering, considering the summer that we've been having, why shouldn't Canada's climate plan be aggressive and ambitious? Well, getting to net zero by 2050 is aggressive. It is ambitious. We also have to live in a, a world of practical reality. And when you look at 2035, we have to realize that's only 12 years away. I don't know that I've ever seen a single major infrastructure project in this country take place in less than a decade. I mean, even looking at the Site C in British Columbia, my goodness, that project started in 1954. It's taken decades for it to get approved. So the notion that somehow we would be able to implement the technology to have all 12,000 megawatts of our power grid completely emissions-free by 2035, and that if they're not, our executives would be thrown in jail. That is why it is unrealistic, it is unachievable, and it's unconstitutional. And I'm prepared to work with the federal government on a 2050 target, because here's the way I look at it, and I think most people will understand this. If you were to buy a brand new car today, and the government came along and made it illegal five years from now, you say, hey, that's going to cost me some hardship. But if it came along and said, you know what, 25 years from now, you're going to need to have a different car, they'll say, oh, well, that's no problem because I have to get a new car anyway. That's what we've done in our sector is that our sector understands there's a natural capital turnover and they're all preparing to be net zero by 2050. That's why we're focused on that target. But but that idea of them being thrown in jail um, and and not not being able to to count on the grid, we know that they're already talking in the net zero grid about having exceptions for for places and communities that can't rely on renewables alone. So that's built into the system. But what are you talking about when when you say thrown in jail? It, they're using their criminal code power to enforce this. They're saying if these uh, if these projects uh, haven't abated 95% of their emissions by 2035, it's punishable by jail time. So you can imagine what, what executive of what company is going to take the risk on building something now, not knowing if they're going to be able to achieve that target. That's why I'm very concerned about the approach he's taken. I want to talk more about the oil and gas cap. The federal government says it's releasing its proposal for a cap on oil and gas emissions as early as October, and there haven't been any details yet. But based on a report by Standard & Poor's Global, you've concluded Canada's oil sands can't meet a cap above 40% by 2030 without cutting production. Now, we asked Minister Guibault about that, and this is what he said. The study that she refers to that's, that saying that the, 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 the cap on emissions would lead to a reduction in production of 1.5 million barrels a day is based on thin air. <laughs> I don't know how people can can make studies about something they haven't seen. Um, we haven't even presented the draft regulations yet, and yet some people go out there and and, and make those the, those claims uh, about about production cut. I I find it a bit a bit rich, frankly. Premier, what do you say to that? Well, the forty two percent target by twenty thirty was was the target that he put forward in March of twenty twenty two and started consulting. So it wasn't pulled out of thin air. It was a it was a, a it was a talking point he put out there, and it makes sense that different companies, different researchers, would try to figure out what that would mean. And what it means is that our production would be shut in. That is only seven years away, 2030. And the idea that we would be able to decarbonize all of our production in seven short years is impossible. But again, the Pathways Group is committed to 2050. And the reason for that is that they want to invest in carbon capture, utilization and storage, build a carbon trunk line, 
make sure that they're capturing CO2. They want to bring on small modular nuclear reactors, which we don't have a regulatory environment for yet in Alberta, and I'm looking forward to working collaboratively with the federal government on that. And then for the last mile, we hope that there'll be some direct air capture technology that will be able to assist as well. Um, there's a, a company in Alberta called Avatar Innovations that is working on ways to do that direct air capture. And I'm very hopeful that by the time we get to 2050, or sooner that we'll be able to have that as a as a contributor to that to that project. But that's the point. Technology takes time. Investment takes time. Regulatory approval takes time. And if you're going to try to rush it in a time frame that's not realistic, not reasonable, it's going to result in this shut-in of production. That's the reason why we have said 2050 is the target. 2030 is not on. Well, we'll have to wait and see what exactly is in the proposal from the minister's office. But but let's talk about carbon capture utilization and storage. There are questions coming from First Nations about the idea of having the, that place to store a lot of the carbon. They don't want it in their backyard. The Cold Lake First Nation says its community has concerns about the storage network that's supposed to be the centerpiece of this plan by the oil sands producers to hit net zero by 2050. What do you say about those kinds of obstacles? Right. One of the things we have done has been supporting um, our First Nations in Alberta with the Alberta Indigenous Opportunities Corporation. And we've allowed them to take on ownership stakes in a variety of different projects, one of them a major pipeline project. And and, uh, and with, with some hope that they would also uh, be, be, be equity partners in every major industrial development so that we have the Indigenous perspective represented so that we can make sure that we can address local needs. I've been delighted to see how many First Nations communities and how many progressive leaders there are who understand that it's not binary. It's, uh, it's actually, you can have it all. We can, we can have dramatically reduced emissions. We can deal with issues of energy security. We can deal with issues of energy affordability and we can create brand new revenue streams uh, so that they can support their people. So I think that that's a, a vision that's being embraced here. I'm looking forward to working uh, with, with that particular band, but all of them in addressing their concerns. Well, that First Nation doesn't seem to have a lot of faith in the process because of past experience. I'm wondering how you restore the trust with them. Well, economic reconciliation is a high priority for our government. We we know that uh, First Nations have felt excluded from the development of, of uh, Canada and, and Alberta, from excluded from the development and full participation in economic opportunity. And we're going to work very hard to correct that. I don't, as I I said, don't, think, I don't, it's, think, I don't think it's necessarily an economic issue for them as much, though, as it is the, the, the potential disruption of the place that they live. I think that what I what I enjoy about my First Nations friendships is that it's a holistic approach that we have to deal with environmental issues, um, but we also have to make sure that there are affordability issues taken care of, and that we ha- do have the economic opportunity. I, I think that that's a, a new paradigm that we're seeing emerge in Alberta, and so I, I think a lot of these problems can be overcome with with good negotiation and coming to the table with the spirit of of economic reconciliation. Okay, let's talk about renewables. Uh, Renewables have been a big success story for Alberta. I mean, you had a boom in it. It, it It's been looking great for the province. And then Alberta puts a moratorium on approvals for new renewable projects um, to consider issues such as land use and reclamation. I'm wondering what signal you think that moratorium is sending to the renewables industry about its future in Alberta. I can tell you that I have to be mindful that the number one most important thing I need to do in providing a power grid is make sure that it is there for the people of Alberta when they need it in plus 30 and minus 30 weather. And unfortunately, um, when we bring on wind and solar, which is intermittent, we always have to bring on a backup. 
At the moment, because of all the uncertainty that has been created at the federal level, we simply do not have enough natural gas baseload being proposed so that we can bring on an equivalent amount so that we can back up our, our, our wind and solar. We have to have these things come, come in tandem together. So that's one part of it. But that's Reliability not why you called for, that's not, number one. But that's not that's why you called for the moratorium. No. It was about land use that's, and reclamation. Uh, it was about all of this, and I've talked about all of it because the Alberta Electric System operator um, wrote a report for us and raised concerns about reliability. That's one part. The other part is that we don't actually have a very, we don't have a robust system for doing the reclamation on these sites. The other part, though, is we cannot be putting um, massive amounts of solar panels on prime agriculture land. That's one of the things that we've heard loud and clear. Like these are taking up acres and acres and acres of of uh, prime farmland in some cases. And so we want to make sure that they're on marginal lands so that when we invest in, in irrigation and food production, that we don't end up with those kind of conflicts. We've got to make sure that we're putting them in the right place. So, and those are the, so the kind of things we're talking about. If farmers wanted to lease their land or, or sell their land for solar installations, you would prevent them from doing that? I can tell you, we've always had spacing requirements when it came to oil and gas. You wouldn't be able to to take up, you know, 3,200 acres of prime agriculture land in southern Alberta with back-to-back um, pump jacks. We, we, we always had spacing requirements. So I think you're going to see that the new environment we come up with will be a lot more clear about where we think solar and wind should both go. And I think it'll create that clarity. And this, if we can solve the problems with the federal government so that we can continue to have the peaker plants come on as backup, and continue to work towards uh, effective carbon capture utilization and storage, I think we'll be able to have a power grid that works and have a good relationship with the rest of the country on this, the common target of getting to 2050 net neutrality. And that, and that target, Premier, your plan to get there doesn't include a transition away from oil and gas. You've been clear about that. But the International Energy Agency says global demand for oil will peak and then drop within the next five years. I'm wondering why have Alberta faced that, that shrinking market for a commodity that's going to be worth less and less? Well, you know, I, I look at what I see with my own eyes. And what I see with my own eyes is that uh, oil is trading at $89 today because there is still a very high demand for it. And part of the reason why there's a demand for it is there are a lot of uses for a barrel of oil. Well, when we started out uh, we, as a society moving towards fossil fuel use, we wanted kerosene and there was a lot of leftover product. And so innovators set to work figuring out what else they could do with it. We now make 6,000 different products out of a barrel of oil. There will always be petrochemicals, there will always be lubricants, there will always be asphalt. The issue is moving away from emissions. It's not moving away from oil and natural gas. But but I'm not sure you answered the question because I know you're saying what the price of oil is right now, but the forecast is that it's going to go down, the demand is going to go down. So why... And Alberta- and Alberta should be the, the best barrel and the last barrel in the market. Why should we vacate the field so that Saudi Arabia and other, and Iran and Iraq and, and other uh, jurisdictions that haven't always been our friends and allies, why would we become reliant on that for the last barrels in the market? I think that when we decarbonize and we have a net zero product, then we should be the last barrels in the market if, the, if, it, if it comes to that. I, I always think that there will be a role for oil and natural gas because it is so valuable. Uh, people want to have net zero vehicles, and that's great, but they're still going to need roads to drive them on. And when they drive them on roads, they'll be driving them on asphalt, and that comes from bitumen. So this is the reason why I am very bullish about this industry and why they're investing so much in decarbonizing, because they're going to be there for decades to come. Most climate scientists, though, agree that bringing the fossil fuel era to a rapid end is the most critical step 
to saving the planet. Do you ever worry that maybe you might have this wrong, that you're on the wrong side of history? No, I think they're wrong. Um, and I think that the no most important thing we should be thinking of right now is how do we bring all the 8 billion people on this planet up to the same level of standard of living and quality of life that we have? And it's going to require us to make sure that we have all hands on deck on energy sources. Energy is the number one thing that determines how a society is able to progress along uh, quality of life and standard of living. And we owe it to the rest of the planet to allow them the opportunity to have everything that we enjoy. Premier Smith, thank you so much for your time. You bet. Thank you. You heard Premier Smith's claim that oil and gas executives could go to jail. An official in Stephen Gilbo's office calls Smith's characterization of the regulations, quote, deliberately inflammatory. The regulations say if fossil fuel burning power plants fail to capture about 95% of their emissions, they may face written warnings, escalating fines, and potentially jail depending on the severity of the problem. Environment Canada's own website lists no cases of company executives going to jail for violations of regulations. And if you want to hear more about some of the concerns about carbon capture technology, you can listen to our episode from January of 2021. It's called, Can We Really Suck CO2 Out of the Air? You can find it by searching What on Earth and Carbon Capture. Premier Smith wasn't the only one who had a strong reaction to my conversation with Canada's climate minister. Listener Lyle Grisdell and Kimberly wrote to say, Your interview with Stephen Gilbo on today's program just confirms my feeling that the next mass extinction will be caused by politicians. That's nice and optimistic. (laughs) Yeah, those are some pretty strong words. Hi, Tara. (laughs) Hi, Laura. CBC investigative reporter Tara Carmen is with me to share some of the feedback. And that's because last week, I also talked with the minister about your investigation into just how dangerously hot people's homes are in the summer. You sure did. And the minister even admitted that people will continue to die of heat in this country in the coming years. And that prompted Laura Henderson to write and say, I share the minister's belief that deaths in the heat are unavoidable for many of us until real solutions can be realized. But should we really be asking an elected official to say that? And Nina Heidke wrote to say, to make the powers that be feel the effects of climate change, there should be no air conditioning in their plush meeting places. Maybe then they will truly get it. Maybe so. Here is one from James Rooney. Listening to your interview with Minister Guibault, he talks about a needed retrofit of Canada's building stock to enable adaptation in the face of climate change. I would say that more urgently, we require a retrofit of the attitudes of Canadians, particularly entitled boomers and their entitled offspring, to accept that their lifestyle is the villain in this story. Uh, Interesting bit of intergenerational tension there. (laughs) (laughs) And Brett Hammerlindel has a suggestion. I'm sure that there is good information about making a city more livable during a heat wave. After all, cities like Houston, Miami, Rome and Athens have decades of experience. We can build on what they've learned to adapt Canadian cities to more intense heat as quickly as possible. Thanks for that, Brett. Charlene Trelevin wrote us a long email. Here's just a part of it. First, let me be clear, I'm sympathetic to people who are threatened by temperatures. But I worry that we are teaching people to think that air conditioning is the only answer. And of course, air conditioning may cool off the inside of a room or a house, but it produces hot air as a side product. When I was young, there were some other solutions. I'm a few weeks short of being 81. 
I live in a house with no air conditioning by choice. I hate air conditioning. I close my curtains during the day. At night, when the sun goes down, I open all the doors and the windows, and by about 2 a.m., I'm woken by being too cool. The problem is not lack of air conditioning. The problem is fossil fuel use, and the profits being made by the oil companies fans the fire. Thank you for all of those emails, and thanks, Tara, for continuing to follow the story. Thanks, Laura. And you can always write to us about this or anything else. Our email address is earth at cbc.ca. Hi, I'm Sandra Bartlett. I produced the Salmon People podcast about the fight to save wild salmon. Now I'm back with The Poison Detectives, a podcast about a nasty chemical that's poisoning the world. Yes, poisoning the world. It's a man-made chemical family called PFAS, and there are more than 12,000 chemicals in this family. It's in the material that firefighting suits are made from, and one woman went on a quest to find out if it gave her firefighter husband cancer. You're listening to What on Earth? I'm Laura Lynch. Even as wildfires destroy massive numbers of trees in Canada, Ottawa is promising to plant billions more by 2030. People across the country are taking on the challenge of making it a reality, digging holes, placing seedlings or young saplings in the ground so they can take root and help to suck in carbon. This is a big area. Uh, south-facing, windy, windy slope. It's probably over 1,200 hectares that we're we're trying to treat here. And as I look around, I can easily see the seedlings we've planted. Yeah, they look healthy, green. green grass. Uh, there's a nice garden right by the house and in the front, and is this bit of an older neighborhood. We're in the front yard here, so just looking into the street above us, there's a cute yard with lots of trees and bushes, and uh, right in the front of the yard, uh, we dug a little hole and put our amber maple right next to these bright yellow sunflowers. Flowers or uh, different native grasses as well. We are planning on installing some interpretive signs uh, around certain naturalized areas this year, and we also put up signs when we do our planting to say this is a naturalized space, please tread lightly, there's small seedlings and trees and shrubs in the area. And in this park there is a pond with some fountains behind us. You can hear, um, you know, over the sound of the water and the fountain at the pond that we're at, you can hear some birds calling in the background. I think I heard a white-throated sparrow, for example, and their call kind of sounds like they're saying, oh sweet Canada, 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 Canada. Now that is a lovely sound, and that is John, Marmick, and Nicole. They don't know each other. John is in rural BC, Marmick is in Saskatoon, and Nicole is in Edmonton. But they have something in common. They're each on a mission to plant millions of trees one by one. And you heard Nicole referring to naturalization, which means returning lands to a natural condition. They're each planting for their own personal reasons, and they're each facing their own sets of hurdles along the way. I really enjoy walking around these naturalized ponds um, where they exist in the city. Uh, I enjoy coming here with my family. My son loves uh, walking up and checking out the water's edge and looking at the ducks that are swimming in the pond. 
all the plant material here, like the long grasses, the shrubs such as the willows and the trees, it provides a lot of habitat for wildlife. It's really peaceful, but also fun to explore. Hi, my name is Nicole Fraser and I'm the General Supervisor of Operations Planning and Monitoring in the Parks and Roads Branch at the City of Edmonton. So the city has a couple of different targets that we're working on meeting. Uh, Edmonton's population is expected to hit 2 million in the near future, so we want to plant 2 million new trees. And on top of that, uh, the City of Edmonton has a goal of reaching 20% forest canopy coverage uh, by 2071. And so that 2 million tree planting goal is a smaller target within our larger 20% urban forest canopy coverage goal. Now we're basically doubling the forest canopy in the city. Uh, when you're thinking about what forest canopy is, if you can imagine looking across the top of a forest and seeing the tops of the trees and the amount of space that they stretch out and um, cover and provide shade, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about forest canopy. As we're walking down the path here, uh, we're passing a trembling aspen. Uh, you can tell from kind of the heart-shaped leaves that have little serrated edges, and these are the ones that would tremble in the wind. So the city plan was published in 2020, and that's when the goal of planting 2 million trees was identified. In those two years, we increased the urban canopy by planting a total of 5,164 new boulevard and open space trees. And we also planted approximately 33 hectares of naturalization. There are challenges when we're trying to do the amount of planting that we need to do at, at this scale. So years ago, I think it was about 10 years or more, there was a drought in Edmonton, which resulted in a lot of tree loss. We have about 16,000 trees in our backlog list of trees that uh, died. Additionally, every year in Edmonton, we have uh, about 3,000 trees that die from various reasons. Again, some naturally and some not naturally. We uh, are intending on replacing that backlog of 16,000 trees as well as replacing 3,000 trees every year. Uh, because if you don't maintain your current forest canopy, then you can't grow it. Planting 2 million trees is definitely a lofty goal. We can have over a thousand staff. So the teams working on this, I think, have felt overwhelmed in the past. But lately, I think people have been more excited. I think we have a goal of planting an additional 40 hectares of naturalization every year, as well as 900 new park and boulevard trees every year. If you think about how many trees you have in your backyard, I know in my bar backyard I have two apple trees. In my front yard I have one small tree. So think about 900 trees and how much space you would need in order to plant 900 trees and we have to spread that across the city every year. We're encouraging more planting on private property as well. If people plant trees in their front yards, their backyards, they also will feel those benefits um, of the shade, of the cooling, uh, of the wildlife and the biodiversity. 
Hey, Yvonne. Hi. Thanks for coming Hi. out. Oh, so, you're welcome. Yeah, I got our Amer, Amer maple right here. Uh, one Amer maple that you're looking for. Are you looking backyard or front yard? Uh, front yard. Oh, perfect. I see you have a location set already. Yes, I do. Perfect. I'll get on planting then. Thank you. My name is Marmik Patel. I'm the founding president here at Plant Forever, a youth-led nonprofit in Edmonton and Saskatoon. Our focus is urban forest development through private property tree planting to mitigate the climate crisis, as well as bridge the connect between trees and people. Yeah, so we got an Amur maple here. These are one of our homeowner favorites. Uh, it's a bright red maple, smaller ones. That's the smallest tree that we have, but uh, homeowners love it. It's great for smaller city yards. They grow about five, six meters in height, three, four meters in width at maturity. And uh, a lot of plant life, a lot of wildlife love it. Uh, it's it's uh, great for the color, especially. I founded the organization almost six years ago in Edmonton. And my focus at the time was creating an environmental nonprofit that does something a little bit different. There were a lot of tree planting nonprofits at the time, there still are. Think about Tree Canada or a lot of these government initiatives. But there was no tree planting organization planting on private property from the nonprofit perspective. So we came in, we created the service where homeowners register and we plant trees for them at their home for extremely cheap. The first tree being free, like the one that we're planting right now. The tricky thing about Plant Forever is there's no particular upper bound on how many trees we want to plant. We're not going to say, oh, we planted 10,000 trees, we're done. The goal here is plant as many as possible in as many cities as we can. We're probably close to a thousand trees uh, in Edmonton and surrounding areas now. Uh, just this season alone, we've had uh, just over 500 for Edmonton. Uh, we planted 100 already in Saskatoon. We have 100 trees, so we're expanding quite significantly. And we know that cities have, especially private property, lots of opportunity for tree planting and increasing that tree canopy percentage. So we're going to continue doing that. So I put the soil here on the tree and next uh, I'll ask the homeowner to give it some water, put a stake next to it, especially for Amur Maple as it's quite thin and tied up just for that extra support and uh, the tree should be good from there. Oh, <laughs> just, just about to knock. Perfect, so I got a, the tree planted here if you want to take a look. So the Amur Maple is quite snug in there. Uh, yeah. I'll just mention a couple of things for maintenance, just taking care of the tree, making sure it's healthy. First one, water it right away, especially it's a hot day right now. It and uh, every couple of days, try to make sure it gets lots of water, especially for these first few years in the summers. Yes. Uh, we want to make sure it's getting lots of water so that it can uh, grow at an optimal pace. I was quite surprised uh, getting to interact with all these homeowners as we plant their trees that the homeowners develop a connection to these trees as well. So from our perspective, we just plant a tree, we have a conversation, we leave. But this is a new part of these homeowners' land, their front yard, their backyards, their acreages, and they get to witness these grow year on year, a foot or two at a time even. And so they develop these bonds where they feel a necessity to take care of them, make sure they're doing all right, add more trees and shrubs in the future. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, okay. And other than that, tree should be good. It's a healthy tree. You can tell by the leaves and uh, yeah, yeah sure just is. make sure it's getting lots of water. It's okay. right in the sunlight. Uh, it should be just fine here. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> There's two big challenges that Plant Forever is facing right now. 
the first one is tree storage and the second one is funding. So for the first, uh, we have these trees in both Edmonton and Saskatoon. They're in pots ready to be sent to homeowners. But right in the start of the season, around May, we can't just give out hundreds of trees. We need a place to store them. And right now, until now, in both cities, we've been keeping them at uh, the private property of some of our team members. But long term, that's not sustainable. It's not an expectation for team members to keep trees. For Edmonton, we have over 500 trees this season. It's pretty difficult to fit that into uh, one person's home. And something we've been looking to as a solution is places in both cities where we can store these. If someone has an acreage, for instance, or a big plot of land a business isn't using, that has access to sunlight, access to water, and can have us use that. That's what we're looking for, some place where we can store these trees. The second challenge Plant for facing right now is funding. Uh, we've been in the plus for a few years now, fortunately, through our fee-for-service model, where homeowners donate for the trees that they're getting uh, beyond the first one that's free. And that's kept us afloat. But what we've found when it comes to looking for funding is that, unfortunately, most funding opportunities were just not eligible. Even thinking about the two billion tree initiative that the government of Canada is launching, there's a lot of restrictions such as planting a minimum of 10,000 trees and we're simply not eligible for that. A lot of other funding are limited to charities. In contrast, we're a nonprofit, and so that prohibits how much funding we can capture. And so one of the next steps we're looking at for Plant Forever is registering to become a charity as opposed to a nonprofit so we can be eligible for more funding opportunities. The thing we focus on is urban forest development. The ideal outcome is to see every major city with a big tree canopy percentage, have opportunities for parks and trees at homes and public property, and not feel that disconnect that we see in many major cities where it's just concrete and roads and not enough nature. It is about the perfect, uh, about as perfect as a weather day as you could hope for in Williams Lake. And when we look at the landscape now, and me and John are standing here looking out at the landscape, and what you see is there's some burnt timber stands, there's some green timber stands, but there is a, a massive clear cut across the hillsides and across the top of, of, of what is our reserve land or incremental treaty agreement lands. And Looking across the landscape here and what I want to see, uh, you don't want to see a dense forest like we had before, but a hybrid model of forest and grasslands that would be ideal and we'd envision as a success. Hello everyone, my name is Chief Willie Sellers and I'm the chief of the Williams Lake First Nation. We're currently on an actual hillside, standing here looking down at the valley, looking down at the lake. So, I mean, we're probably five minutes from the community, but we're perched up uh, uh, up on the hillside looking at this beautiful landscape. You know, we've been really blessed with some great weather over spring and early summer. But what that has led to now is a, a kind of a crazy wildfire season in Williams Lake. A lot of triggers around wildfire nowadays because of what happened in 2017. All eyes are on the people of Williams Lake tonight. More than 10,000 people call that city home, but in a heartbeat, they could all be forced to leave. 
What we've seen happen over the course of two weeks was the city of Hunter Mile House be evacuated, the WLFN community be evacuated, and then the city of Williams Lake evacuated shortly after that. And it was completely surrounded by dense forest. And we're talking hundreds of thousands of cubic meters of timber surrounding our community. And what we were left with was some stands that were partially burnt, uh, some that were burnt to a crisp and not salvageable. And what we did was, you know, we looked at the opportunity that presented itself with uh, the timber that was there, and we were able to salvage over 200,000 cubic meters of partially burnt dug fir, uh, some pine stands that were left over, and of course some deciduous that were left over in on our reserve lands and in the general vicinity on our incremental treaty agreement lands surrounding our reserve. And we, we were able to do really well but, you know, there, there was profit that was made. We were able to put people to work. We were able to salvage that opportunity. But now moving forward into the future, it's, well, what are we doing on the silviculture side to make sure that we do have an, that natural resource still available to us for future generations? And that's where we pivot and we get into replanting these hillsides, establishing those trees, and, and of course, doing our part to offset the erosion that we're seeing in the floodings that we've seen in 2018 and, uh, you know, do, do our part to be stewards of the land. I'm John Walker. I'm the stewardship forester for the Williams Lake First Nation. As I look in the plantation, try, looking for the seedlings we planted this spring, quite disappointed. I see one live pine, there's a dead fir, but this southwest facing slope, there's there's no moisture. It's so extreme a temperature. The temperature here, it's 30 degrees right now. The soil is probably closer to 40. The poor seedlings without, without rain this spring and summer, they're... Uh, they have an uphill battle for sure. This is a multi-year project uh, for planting. In uh, 2022, we planted 426,000 through the 2 billion tree program. Last year, or this year, we planted 102,000 through Tree Canada. And our goal is to plant another 400,000 trees next year and 300,000 the year after that. The first year we, we planted, it was a bit daunting. I uh, thought it would take many months, uh, but we have good contractors here in Williams Lake. And it actually only took a little over two weeks to plant 426,000 trees. The biggest challenge with this project is... Uh, how hard it is to grow a tree in this this area. It's more difficult than I thought. Um, I was expecting there to be uh, some mortality in here, but I was thinking more in like the 50% range of mortality and there's areas where it's probably 90. Did not anticipate deer chewing on them in the winter. That was a a new one. I, I knew about the drought. Uh, we knew about um, the frost 
in the summer. Uh, but uh, yeah, there's there's more challenges, but it's it's okay for it to be a bit more open. This area would have had an open forest um, back 150 years ago before fire was taken off the landscape or good fire. And because it was allowed to grow up so dense with so many small trees, uh, that's why we had such a catastrophic event in 2017. So a little bit more open is not bad. It's more natural. It's just not what we're used to now in, in these t times. Working together on how we manage the land is something that needs to be looked at. Holding up that Indigenous culture and that history of, of how we used to practice being stewards of the land is something that needs to be incorporated in the day-to-day -day of you know, the modern world around forestry practices. Being stewards of not only the land but of the, the climate and the environment that we all live in and are able to celebrate. and how we move forward as a collective is going to have to be a hybrid model, holding up those cultural practices, but also bringing in the science and making sure that, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at this model in, in unison, in unity, in Nakusum. The hope that I see for the trees. There's lots of hopes for these trees. My hope for all these trees that we plant. My hope for these trees that we're planting is that they have the support they need. And I hope that these trees continue to grow. Grow for decades and decades to come, especially some of our trees like the bur oak that lasts over a century. They get lots of insects and uh, birds chirping on them. When I look back, let's say I'm 90 years old and looking back at this organization, uh, the ideal outcome is being satisfied with the fact that we've made an impact when it comes to mitigating the climate crisis. And, and we'll never see what happened. Just the emotional support of having a forest. So, so the vision is making sure that my children, my grandchildren are going to be able to celebrate the beauty of these stands in this region, in this territory for years and years to come, long after I am gone. That documentary was produced by Tanera McLean, and it comes to us from the CBC Audio Documentary Unit. And by the way, September the 20th is National Tree Day, and Tree Canada is celebrating with planting events all across the country. I just want to pick up on that one phrase, the emotional support of having a forest. I grew up right next to a forest uh, on the North Shore of Vancouver played in it as a child, continue to walk through it as an adult. And I can vouch for the fact <laughs> that you do get a lot of support from just being in the forest. It is called forest bathing in some other cultures, and uh, it exists. Remember, you can listen to What on Earth on Demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much anywhere you look for podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. And shout out to Bright19, who gave us five stars on Apple Podcasts and said, 
This podcast provides interesting reports from across Canada, highlighting people's efforts to address climate issues. Laura Lynch is an inspiration. Uh, yeah, thanks very much, Bright One Nine. Um, I promise that is not a relative, um, but it may inspire others to listen to our podcast, and that would be a great thing. That is all for us this week. The show was put together by Danielle Piper, Emily Vance, Rachel Sanders, Molly Siegel, Vivian Luck, Matthias Wolfson, and Catherine Rolfson. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.